Welcome to the Responsibly Different mini-series exploring the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, helping you set meaningful goals in 2023. Welcome to the Responsibly Different mini-series featuring the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. In this episode, Brittany and I will be discussing goal number 11, sustainable cities and communities. As the United Nations states, make cities inclusive, safe, resilient, and sustainable. We are excited to bring you two perspectives for this episode about how businesses are working with communities. Although these two businesses are vastly different, they are still just two perspectives. So we encourage you to think about your community and how you show up while keeping what these two folks are saying in mind. We want to encourage you to think about how you can bring these insights back to your community. To help set the stage a bit more for understanding this goal, I want to share with you some facts. Since 2007, more than half the world's population has been living in cities, and that is projected to rise to 60% by 2030. Cities are the powerhouse of economic growth, contributing about 60% to global GDP, and cities are also accounting for 60 to 80% of energy consumption, and 70% of global carbon emission. Nine in 10 people living in urban areas are breathing air that is not meeting the World Health Organization's air quality guidelines. This movement, rush of urbanization, rapid growth that we are seeing in our cities is resulting in a growing number of slum dwellers. It is overburdening our inadequate infrastructure and services and causing huge problems for air quality. And worst of all, as we see effects on our environment from climate disasters, cities are the most vulnerable of communities to these natural disasters due to the high concentration of people. Urban planning is believed to be crucial to avoiding human, social, and economic losses. These issues will eventually affect every global citizen and our most vulnerable citizens are going to feel the impact first due to systemic barriers, many of which we have discussed in earlier episodes of this SDG series like SDG number one, no poverty, SDG number three, good health and well-being. And really, we touch on them in some capacity in every episode. We had a chance to connect with Steve Whitman, the founder and principal of Resilience Planning and Design located in Plymouth, New Hampshire. We want to share a bit about Steve's perspective on what his company is doing and how they are approaching working with different communities to ensure communities can be built for all. If urban planning is believed to be one of the solutions to solving this rapid urbanization movement, we want to better understand the perspective of urban planners and their approach to solving these big problems. Our firm, Resilience Planning and Design, primarily works with communities, um, nonprofit organizations, and on occasion, state and regional agencies uh, to plan for the future. 
And that may include uh, conservation planning, environmental planning type projects. Often it includes municipal planning projects for towns and cities who are planning out the next 10 years of who they want to be and how they want to get there, how they want to achieve their vision. Um, So things like land use policy and infrastructure upgrades and engaging the public in that decision-making process. To understand their work, we were curious what clients are looking for. What are towns, communities, or cities turning to urban planners to help them accomplish? So often when we're approached by a municipal client, just as an example, um, they have an existing plan. Um, It may be dated. It may be 10, 20, sometimes 30 years old. But they have this plan that they've been referencing and kind of referring to for a decade or more that was giving them a direction that people had kind of come to consensus on either collectively or just through the participation of a small group of people. And so often what they're doing is they're recognizing that they don't have a vision, a clear stated vision for the future, and they don't really have an action plan or a roadmap of how to get there. And in some cases, they recognize that there's some division in the community and that this is an opportunity to kind of like come together and assess where they are today and kind of chart a course together In some states, it is a requirement to have such a plan as Steve is talking about. In looking at these action plans or roadmaps, acting as their guiding light to better plan for the future, we wanted to understand if there was one thing Steve saw with all of his clients. I think as we plan for communities now um, and we look to the future, a lot of the approaches are different. Outreach and engagement kind of how we can include other people, even though it's hard to get people's attention, the many different methods we could use to engage people in the process and to both educate them about the project and allow them to educate and inform us and the client, the community. That's changed a lot. The topics we address have changed a lot. Um, You know, previously, a decade or more ago, energy wasn't an issue Uh, resilience wasn't an issue, food systems weren't issues, Um, thinking about like housing for all, um, infrastructure that meets a wider variety of of residents and visitors. It's changed quite a bit as a new generation of people are decision makers, either as staff or as local elected or volunteer officials. What I want to make clear from this quote is that with this new wave of decision makers Steve is seeing in communities, They are caring about these issues, energy, resiliency, food systems, and housing for all, building a community that will benefit everyone. We know society has historically left folks behind. It is important to think about what is changing in communities local to you. What is causing those changes and are those changes benefiting everyone? Are there people being left behind in your community? The other part that Steve shares that we want to emphasize is how he is creating various opportunities for the communities impacted by potential changes to provide their own feedback. So typically our engagement um, of people who are residing in the community, working in the community, have businesses in the community, or somehow have an affinity with that place includes a combination of like in-person events and online events so that folks can both participate in a mode that's easiest and best for them based on their lifestyle and based on their access to technology or their comfort being in public spaces, especially 
you know, given health concerns and other things more recently. But also a recognition, I think, that people need time to process information. And so if you were to participate in an in-person meeting, some of your best ideas may come to you on your way home or in talking it over with your spouse the next day or with people at work. And so like, how do you then go online and provide that feedback? So having multiple pathways and multiple opportunities kind of throughout the life of the project has become more typical. It's when all stakeholders have a seat at the table that community planning can be inclusive for all. So in, in thinking about what makes a community more inclusive than another community, I think it's something we are all grappling with and still discovering ways to accomplish, not even accomplish, really still strive for. Um, and this came up in a meeting we had last night with a community in the Berkshires. I think often volunteers and staff understand that there are people who have been, whether intentionally or unintentionally, excluded from the conversation for a long time, right? That, and that the systems we have in place for municipal decision-making and like public meetings themselves often either aren't at a time or in a location or using a format that's comfortable for people, or they don't have they don't have the flexibility to be there and participate because survival is kind of their at the foremost of their needs. So what we've tried to do is reach out and communicate clearly using a variety of practices. And sometimes that means going to places you maybe wouldn't typically go or board members wouldn't typically go. And it could be places where people get services like laundromats. It could be you know, places where they live, like if there's a higher density neighborhood that has people maybe of lower incomes or has a greater diversity than the population at large, you know, trying to find ways into those places to have conversations. And that still doesn't guarantee that people will choose to participate. And so one of the things we've done in trying to think about being inclusive is just to communicate to people the opportunities and also ask them if they have other ideas about how they would prefer to participate. And I think we're seeing a growing awareness that there's no silver bullet, so to speak, for like how to do this well, and that it depends. It's community to community. It depends on relationships. We did a project for the city of Burlington, Vermont, where they had formed some tremendous relationships. And so they did a lot of that kind of person-to-person outreach, and they reached out to leaders of communities, identified communities um, within the city. And because they had been forming those relationships and had built trust, they were able to get feedback and get participation and get direction on their project. Um, they, They were further ahead than a lot of other communities. I'm seeing this common thread between a lot of the conversations we're having with business leaders throughout this mini series. Are you hearing it too? Businesses, which are run by people to serve people, need to ensure they are staying true to their roots. In this case in Burlington, Vermont, Steve was able to get feedback from community members because there were already relationships formed between the local officials and the community members. They had a mutual trust and understanding for one another. From Steve's work in communities, cities, towns, or municipalities across New England, we are able to see that these communities need a plan to help them see a more inclusive future for all, to see how they can become a sustainable city. 
Now that we know all the work and planning that goes into making a community work for everyone, we want to introduce you to Debbie Misahan. Debbie is the founder of Certified B Corporation, the Coconut Traveler, based in Hawaii. The Coconut Traveler is an experiential tour company. And while Steve's work centered around where people live and work, Debbie is being intentional about the impact tourists leave in her community in Hawaii. We started the company um, initially as a villa company, and we began in January 2018. And it soon morphed into an experiential company. And what happened um, in the process is we started having this feeling of our being your typical sort of pedestrian company that wasn't really solving any issues. And we really looked at like, what is our impact as a company and how can we make that this a better company? And so we didn't start off as seeking B Corp certification, but it became something that we really wanted to do when we started to realize the impact of our business on our community and our environment. One thing I really appreciate about the Coconut Traveler is how Debbie mentions they started in the travel industry and later learned how their business was impacting the community and the environment they operated in. She changed from your average tour company to what she calls an experiential company. And it goes to the whole point of learning and adjusting as you continue to walk this earth. For me, it's experiencing the destination as it is versus something contrived or too pedestrian. It means experiencing, in our case, if we have clients who want to go surfing, we want them to go surfing with a person who has meaning in our uh, local community, who has an eye to the environment as well. Many of our providers, which are vetted, are local, of course, have either grown up here or have all of their experience here. And they're going to give you a different experience than if you go on a group packaged experience that'll maybe bypass the the depth of, of the destination you're in, but give you something more. I think it's very different from transactional. You know, we're really trying to engage in experiential travel uh, versus a, a transaction of I served, here's your money. Debbie touches upon the idea of traveling with more meaning. This is to her the idea of sustainable tourism. What do the words sustainable tourism mean to me? Seriously, we talk about this all the time and whether or not tourism is, on the whole is something that can be sustainable. And in our business, what we found is sustainable travel is a shift in consumer behavior, right? Consumers go on vacation and generally extract. Um, they're becoming... Uh, more aware of their impact in the destination. But that is a huge shift in what we have been doing as an industry. And um, because consumer behavior is, as you know, really expensive to change, um, and we're a micro business of five people, we looked at sustainable tourism from another way. Like if we cannot change the behavior of travelers on our own, or even collectively, you know, B Corp and many other companies are doing wonderful work around this. But we felt let's come from this at another angle. And so to make it sustainable, the Coconut Traveler looked at where is the impact of our business and our consumers. And so if we send 12 people this year hiking onto our favorite trails, we look for organizations that are doing good work on those trails. 
Um, when you find an organization that's managing a trail, a volunteer organization like Aloha Tree Alliance that's managing a trail, um, they're also probably working with someone who's managing the water below it. The impact of hiking on trails, you know, is much more than I think people think. And frankly, when they're on vacation, don't want to think about. And so instead of trying to change that consumer behavior, we picked up organizations with our responsible tourism fee that we could fund who could do even more and better work on the trails that we use. Debbie then elaborates on the hiking examples and shared how while making a hike more challenging, people may not be thinking about the impact they could leave behind. We have hiking enthusiasts that want to make it more challenging. So instead of doing the crisscross, right, the the crossing trail, they'll go straight up it. Well, that creates this entire problem for the reefs down below for when the rain comes and it just, you know, it's it's one thing after another. And we're in such a small community. This These volunteer organizations can do incredible work, but they're underfunded. So we're like, we got you, you know, we're, we're, we want to help. And the whole tourism industry is on the whole could, could do the same thing. You all know I love to surf. So that example really resonated with me. It is an amazing concept, having an interaction that is more meaningful for the tourist and for the community where you are visiting. Debbie has a larger name for this concept called the responsible tourism fee. Let's listen as she describes this a bit more. What we developed was something that we called the responsible tourism fee. And this fee was essentially a way for us to, again, not try to change consumer behavior, but by using the guests that we, that we work with here in Hawaii, make a positive impact. So we developed the responsible tourism fee as a way to share what we do with our community environment and environment in a positive way. Um, you know, being a small micro business in a capitalistic world, we couldn't see how we could survive if the donations were going to come from our small business. And that made us look at, well, whose responsibility is it really? And it is the tourist, right? It is, the, it's their responsibility. I'm doing my part paying taxes here in the destination and so these organizations that need financial support, we felt could be supported by asking the people that we work with, the people that we welcome into our small destination, if they would participate in this so that we had resources to support these volunteer organizations. Comparing the responsible tourism fee to taxes for a place you are visiting really struck home for me. It really made this concept easy to understand as a no-brainer to charge as a business running tours and for tourists visiting a community and benefiting from its resources. We're an altruistic company that wants to share the benefit of, of what we get, right? We are the stakeholders of our company, but our destination and our community is what we're selling. So it's almost like, how do we positively commodify the destination we live in in order to give it back? You know, if I'm going to make money on the back of my neighbors and my destination, it's going to benefit. Like, I, I'm not that person and we're not that. The Coconut Traveler is not that company that would um, only make money for ourselves, only have the benefit to stay within our, you know, micro team of five. 
Oh gosh, that's so cool. And that is the mindset that we hope everyone brings to their business. Think about the whole community and ensure that we all collectively are benefiting while protecting those vital resources. The impact of tourism is real. Let's try to solve it by supporting volunteer organizations that do good for the community, the environment, and the tourists who visits here, unbeknownst to them. And that is exactly what Debbie and her team at the Coconut Traveler are doing. They are leaving no stone unturned and vetting these nonprofit organizations that they donate to every Giving Tuesday while they bring more sustainably-minded tourists to Hawaii. The Coconut Traveler is also giving back to the community to protect the land. Last year, in 2021, the Coconut Traveler raised roughly $20,000 to donate to their local organizations. And this year, in 2022, the Coconut Traveler raised just over $51,000 and gave that money to a number of organizations doing great work in their community. I mean, with travel, with that privilege of travel comes responsibility. And we have to be less afraid to lose business if uh, someone says, I'm not paying that because this company doesn't charge it. Then take that tap. You know, we are doing what we believe is the right thing to do. And I believe that all companies should have a responsible tourism fee. If you want a license to do business in a community and it's tourism and that tourism business of yours is going to impact community and the environment, I would think any company would want to participate in this because, um, you know, the impact is real. We're a million and a half people in a state where 10 million people visit. You can't tell me that everyone isn't impacted by this every day, right? The the clean drinking water that we have is um, siphoned off by the tourism industry, right? So, that's an immediate impact. So we should all be paying forward ways to help these volunteer organizations that are doing their best work for free. If more companies approached their business footprint the same way that the coconut traveler is, we might not be faced with these same conversations of how can we make cities inclusive, safe, resilient, and sustainable. Debbie saw an issue her business was leaving on the longevity of her community, and she found a way to make a difference. People are going to travel to Hawaii. There's no stopping that. But by charging them a responsible tourism fee, it's a great way to raise awareness and ensure the environment is not taken advantage of. It comes down to capitalistic behavior. Do you want to be a part of the solution or do you not? And to me, that is the most simple response. Like, yes, we want to do this. And whether it's already developed or if it's not like the responsible tourism fee, find solutions that work. If government can't institute a $50 visitor fee, make make it this way, do it this way. You know, like that's what I find really exciting about the whole process. And honestly, feeling like a square peg, um, you know, trying to fit into a round hole, B Corp is like, Oh no, we got a square peg here that you fit in. You know, and like it's really cool. They just make you feel a good part of of what you're doing is is actually valuable, and that's really nice. Thank you for listening to this episode about goal number eleven: sustainable cities and communities. We focus the conversation around businesses that we know are going above and beyond for our communities. But you may have noticed we did not talk about any of the targets or means of implementation with this goal. 
That just means there is so much more to learn, read, discover, and grow around this topic. As always, we encourage you to keep learning. Tune in to the next episode to learn about goal number 12, responsible consumption and production, as we continue this mini-series on all of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. Until next time, be responsibly different. Slow it down, it's okay. It's on my own bright future in the lights today. I can show you too like it's 1962. You got a bright future in the nick of time. Bright future in the nick of time. This episode was hosted and produced by yours truly, Ben Marine and Brittany Angelo. We purchased this music from the amazing B Corp Marmoset Music. You can check them out at marmosetmusic.com. To learn more about us, visit responsiblydifferent.com. And to learn more about our parent company, visit dirigocollective.com.